The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So those of you maybe who weren't with us last week, or maybe you're not with us on a regular basis, we believe God, the Bible is God's Word. It is His living Word. It's His revelation put in writing for our benefit, for our good. It's food for our soul. It's milk and meat for the Christian. And God uses the Spirit to illuminate the words so we can understand them. So literally, God speaks through Scripture to us. Primarily, I was at Chuck E. Cheese yesterday. One of my favorite places to hang out, Chuck E. Cheese. And while my son's doing the Chuck E. Cheese thing, I've got a stack of books about yay big on the table at Chuck E. Cheese. And some guy walks by and does a double, triple take and sits right down next to me with his kid. And So I knew it was coming. Um, something's coming. And he turns around and he introduces himself. And what are you, what are you reading? Because I had a stack of ten books, and uh, they all said First Corinthians, and he saw that, and I said, "Oh, First Corinthians," and so he's quite intrigued. Well, it turns out he goes to a local church in San Jose, and he's inquiring, and <clears throat> immediately he just started into me with a question. He said, "So, how do you, what do you, how do you think God speaks to us?" And uh, I think I knew what he was getting at, and I told him, "I think God speaks to the Christian primarily." Or, speaks it all today, primarily through His Word, through Scripture. That's how we hear the voice of God. The, the Bible are God's thoughts written down on paper. He, he did not quite understand what I was saying. Because it turns out he, he believed in other ways of communicating with God and hearing from God, from visions and dreams. and Actually, most of his illustrations of hearing from God, if not all of them, happened outside of Scripture. So we had a good discussion he thought it was beneficial, but it just reminded me that uh, some things we take so such for granted, so basic. How does God speak to people today? He speaks through His Word, through the Bible. Not everybody believes that. That's actually kind of a rare view. But it's a good reminder for us. So let's look and see what God has for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We introduced the book of Corinthians last week. If you want to get caught up, you can maybe order a CD or probably the best way to do it. Because that laid the foundation for this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Just by way of quick summary, if you weren't here last week, if you want to learn about how the church at Corinth was started, you can go to Acts chapter 18. The book of Acts has all of Paul's four missionary journeys on them. He was a church planter par excellence, the Apostle Paul. I think I counted one time. He must have planted over a dozen churches that we're aware of, probably a couple of dozen churches that he planted. That's what his calling was as an apostle. And so Corinth was one of those churches that he planted and started himself. And so we learned in Acts 18 that he was on a second missionary journey going up in Macedonia and getting chased out of city after city. Just about every city he went to, he'd eventually get chased out of. And was getting chased out of city after city, and they're chasing him from city to city. And then he ends up going down uh, from Macedonia down to Greece and to Berea and then Athens and then uh, ends up in the city of Corinth. Now, when he goes into Corinth, as far as we know, uh, no one had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ thoroughly there, and there wasn't a church that existed there. So Paul began preaching in the synagogue, and there was great resistance there. And the makeup of the city of Corinth was totally pagan and, for the most part, Gentile, probably. Uh, a modern-day San Francisco, if you will, or Amsterdam, just to kind of give you a perspective. People that lived there didn't necessarily have Jewish background or Old Testament background. That was very foreign to them. 
uh, promiscuity and debauchery, sexual immorality just ran rampant and actually was extolled in that culture to a point of religious fervor, actually. And so Paul had amazing, unique challenges in Corinth that he maybe didn't necessarily have to contend with when he went to, say, a Jewish city where a majority of the people at least were raised on Old Testament truth the Old Testament scriptures, which spoke of the true God, Yahweh, and had all those mosaic laws that was a code of morality that God had given. And even if they weren't saved or a believing Jew, they had a code of morality that they were raised with. They were raised with a biblical worldview. They may maybe even established a pattern of behavior for decades that was in keeping at least with the code of morality and the worldview of religion that God had established clearly in the Old Testament. So that was a unique challenge for Paul to go into a culture that didn't have that background. And so he's confronting people who have been sinners and very gross sinners for a long period of time, decades. So he was there in Corinth for about a year and a half, started preaching. Uh, there were some people that were responding positively and a few people getting saved here and there. And then he started getting some resistance and thought, man, maybe man, maybe I should leave now because I get beat up in every city I go to if I stay too long. And Jesus said, no, stay. i got many people in that city. So he stayed. So he ended up staying for a year and a half and actually planted a church, established a community of believers and planted a church, which he later refers to as the church in Corinth, the church of God in Corinth. There for a year and a half, planted this church cold turkey, keeping in mind the background of most of these newly professed Christians was totally pagan and had no exposure to Old Testament scriptures. Uh, look at First Corinth. This is a little biographical sketch of what many of them are like. Look at First Corinthians chapter four. Paul actually, I'm sorry, First Corinthians uh, six. Paul reminds them of what they used to be like before they got saved. This is what many of these folks were like. Uh, the middle of verse nine in chapter six, he says, "Do not be deceived." Christian, Corinthian, don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's people who violate and sin against God's institution of marriage of one man, one woman for life. For fornicators, uh, nor I, neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that's abandoning your God-given role as a male or a female, nor homosexuals, which would include lesbians and transsexuals as well. Ten, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, partiers, people who were also violent, nor swindlers, that's Las Vegas, will inherit the kingdom of God. If you think they can, you are deceived. And look at this amazing phrase of verse 11. Such were some of you. Remember, I came into this city and you were pagan to the core. Some of these people, decades-long drunkards, homosexuals, lesbians, sexually immoral, adulterers, polygamists, idolaters, worshiping rocks and stones and people and Caesar and false Greek gods. That was their lifestyle and worldview. And that's what they got saved out of by hearing the gospel. So when they had this transformation of being saved, 
If you've been living a wretched, despicable life for decades, say, say you get age, saved at age 40, but for 40 years you just lived this debauched, horrifically sinful life and you've established just gross patterns of sin, the moment you become a Christian, those habits don't just necessarily disappear. Yeah, you believe in the gospel. Yes, you got saved from all of your sins. Yes, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. But many times, those patterns that have been established for so long carry over into your Christian life. And you revert back to your bad habits. I think we all do to some degree. Reverting back to the bad, sinful habits of what we were like before we got saved. Or just reverting back to sinful nature of humanity. And the Corinthians were the worst at this. Or It was the greatest challenge for them compared to many other congregations that Paul dealt with. So they had these long-term besetting sins of habitual patterns of life that they just couldn't overcome in a day and a week. And so after they'd been saved for a year and a half and Paul was working with this church for a year and a half and then Paul leaves Corinth, leaves the church on its own, he goes to a couple other cities, plants another church, ends up in Ephesus, he's in Ephesus for three years. And for the three years that he was away from Corinth, he kept hearing reports Growing reports from people at Corinth that things were not going well. Paul, we got Houston, we got a problem. No, Corinth, we got a problem. And so he started getting these messages about there's some disruption and problems growing in Corinth, Paul, that needs your attention. And some of the problems were there was a growing disunity. There was factions. There were cliques. That was becoming a huge problem. So they were becoming a very divisive church. Uh, they were abusing spiritual gifts and they were becoming arrogant and puffed up about it. That's probably one of the greatest characteristics about the Corinthians is they were arrogant and puffed up as they looked down their nose at everybody else. And that became a public reputation. It was pretty sad. And then one of the things that grieved Paul the most in terms of a growing problem in the church of Corinth is they began to first question the leadership of Paul. Humans do this, by the way. They began to question the leadership of Paul, then when some false teachers who loved power came in and began to brainwash the Corinthians negatively about Paul behind Paul's back and they began to collectively question the authority and the legitimacy of Paul's ministry altogether. And so you've got almost a wholesale uh, rejection of the Apostle Paul as their pastor and as an apostle and you've got almost the entire church turning 180 on their pastor. And so you read 16 chapters of Corinthians and another 13 plus chapters of 2 Corinthians. That's one of the main issues that Paul is dealing with is these, they are rife with problems, the Corinthian church. Their divisiveness, their arrogance, their immorality run amok, copying the world, reverting back to sinful behavior. And worst of all, in Paul's mind on a personal level is that they have almost categorically rejected him as an authority and as a leader and as a pastor and as an apostle of God. And he is grieved. And there was no other church like this that we know of in the New Testament. It's amazing. You read First and Second Corinthians, and after you read that, contrast that when you, and then read First and Second Thessalonians. What a breath of fresh air the Thessalonians were. They loved Paul. Uh, he commends them throughout the entire letter, both letters. They, they had some problems, but they were just a warm local church that just loved and embraced Paul and were committed to him long term. The same with the Philippians, filled with joy, appreciated Paul. He loved the Philippians in terms of, of the personal rapport he had with them. Not with the Corinthians, that was just a lifelong problem as far as Paul was in ministry. As far as we know, he wrote up to five different letters trying to solve these problems with the Corinthians. That so much was at a personal level in terms of them abandoning their idea that Paul was an authority in their life and also just their worldliness continually creeping into their life. 
reverting back to sin over and over and over again. And it became extremely frustrating for Paul. But look at 1 Corinthians 4, just for a couple of things, to highlight and accentuate these problems that Paul was having. He writes 16 chapters in this epistle, and then 13-plus chapters in 2 Corinthians as well. And it's all to one congregation trying to solve problems. They were messed up. Well, what were some of the problems? Well, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. Who, you guys are judging me. You're, you're criticizing me. You're criticizing my ministry. You're uh, criticizing me behind my back. You're undermining me. You're gossiping about me. Your pastor, the one who came and gave you the gospel. So they were judging Paul illegitimately. What else were they doing? Verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 4. Why do you boast? They became the boasting church. They were an arrogant church. They flaunted their spirituality and they condemned and looked down their nose at other people, including other Christians and other churches. And they looked down their nose even at Paul. So they were criticizing Paul behind his back. They were boastful and arrogant. Uh, verse 14, Paul says, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you. This letter is a letter of rebuke for 16 chapters. Try to get their attitude in check. And then at the end of verse 21, here's the emotional peak and level that it reached. Paul planned to come back to Corinth after he wrote this letter. And he knew he was going to have to go mano y mano, face to face, and he was going to have a wrestling match with this church. And it might not be pretty, because in 1 Corinthians 4.21, Paul says, well, what do you desire? What do you want me to do? This is the By the way, this is the second letter he wrote to them. It didn't fix the problems in the first letter he wrote. Boy, I sure hope that this remedies the problem. It probably won't, so I know I'm going to have to come and be in your midst. And when I do come... Okay, Corral, verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? Do I have to come and give you a spanking? He's talking to them like they are immature little children who need discipline. And actually, you know what? They were. They were immature spiritual Christians. But there was probably a mix of false believers as well, complicating things. So it's kind of a threat. Do you, do you, do you really want me to come there and give you a spanking and really lay into you? And then, point being, you go back to chapter 1. Point is, for 16 chapters, he is just dealing with problem after problem after problem. And some of them are, they're horrible. Incest, like he hadn't even seen among, among pagans. Uh, infighting, suing one another, uh, warped theology, accommodating the world, uh, being arrogant and boastful, being judgmental, being critical, factious, divisive spirits. Uh, not acting like Christians, not acting out love at all, which is the mark of a Christian. And that didn't solve the problem, so he has to write another epistle that's even more harsh in Second Corinthians years later. And all this just a couple of years after he planted the church. This church turned so quickly. So it's it's not pretty. They got a lot of this is a dysfunctional church. And Paul's actually He's probably, he's emotionally distraught about their condition. And he's, uh, it's weighing on his soul. He's losing sleep over their condition. We know this. He refers to that later. And he knows he's going to have to confront them. And so that takes us to the introduction of Corinthians. Let's go ahead and look at it. First Corinthians chapter 1, I just want to look at the first nine verses. And so with that background, knowing the condition of the church and the problems that they have and the fact that they've turned on Paul and questioning his authoritative leadership as an apostle and all the other practical problems that they have and they're not really listening to him or his emissaries that he's sending to fix things, I think, boy, he's probably going to really lay into them. 
Kind of like he did in Galatians. Oh no, do you remember Galatians chapter 3 verse 1 where he said, You foolish Galatians! Wow. That's pretty harsh. But that's what he said. Well, he had reason to be that upset. So when I think about Corinthians, I'm thinking, he certainly has got to say, you foolish Corinthians. You foolish Corinthians. But what amazes me when I read the opening uh, chapter of 1 Corinthians is in the first nine verses, there's none of that. There's no negativity. There's no uh, rebuke. He's not calling them foolish. As a matter of fact, it's kind of amazing when you read it because it makes it sound like Paul thinks they're Christians. And they, they are Christians who have been blessed and they are Christians who are full of grace. And their profession of faith is sincere and legitimate. And you're like, really? Is that what you really think of them, Paul? Because it sounds so contrary to the way they're acting. So let's go ahead and look at the apparent contrast, the way Paul opens his letter. He starts out and says to them, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a, what a kind, gracious way to greet these people. I heard about all your problems and how does he start out? Grace to you, grace to you and peace. What's the first word of greeting you have with somebody you're mad at upon seeing them or writing a letter? Even if it's a fellow Christian. Paul's amazing, he's exemplary. For us, grace to you. He'll, he'll knock them around later. But anyway, he's being nice now. Uh, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning... And he is sincere. I thank my God always concerning you. Now, not about all their problems, but what there was to be thanked of what God has done in their life. What a great parental principle. Think of your kids if you or parents and... Maybe you've got some that are wayward or disobedient at times and they grieve you and they give you a headache and they try your patience and they have patterns of behavior that are just drive you bananas. I bet you if you stop and think about it, there's something you can thank God for regarding the children He's entrusted to you. That's what Paul did. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in Him that is in Christ in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What a great way to open a passage of a Christian people who have a lot of problems and about which you're about to address many of those problems in a very intense and emotional manner. There are lessons to be learned there as a fantastic leader and gracious Christian put forth by the Apostle Paul and how he deals with the Corinthians. Just big, Here's some big picture thoughts I had as I read that first nine verses compared to the rebuke that they deserved. Uh, in the first nine verses... There is nothing negative whatsoever Paul says about the Corinthians. Nothing negative. Uh, also in the first nine verses, he lays down clear principles, truthful principles that we're going to see later by which he is going to 
abide by in the conversation with them. He's going to operate with them on principle, even though they're difficult to deal with. And when you are dealing with difficult people, you need to operate on principle, biblical principles. That will help you. Those will be the parameters. If you don't operate within the parameters and the confines of biblical principles, you'll be out in the woods and in the weeds and on a tangent and undermining and destroying the very conversation headed towards no biblical goal. And so there are principles that are clearly articulated in the first nine verses that will be the foundation of the conversation with these people. Also, what does he do in the first nine verses? He establishes common ground as fellow believers. If you have a conflict with a fellow believer, first establish common ground. What is more common that we have the same Savior, Jesus Christ? Right? We have the same Father. God Almighty, we have the same Holy Spirit. The same triune God that we worship that saved us. The same Spirit of God that lives in us. The same standard of truth in the Bible. You've got to establish the common ground. And that's what Paul does with the Corinthians. A very wise thing to do. And also, finally, Paul is Christ-centered as he establishes the parameters of the conversation. It's all about Christ. It's not about Paul. It's not about the Corinthians. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Peter or Cephas. It's not about this or that or their giftedness or what the problem is. Primarily, the focus of this conversation is going to be Christ-centered. Theocentric, Christocentric. Why do I say that? Because if you'll note very carefully, and if you haven't picked it up yet, Jesus Christ is mentioned by Paul in every one of the first nine verses. It's all about Him. Everything they are that is legitimate is in Christ. Every gift they've received is in Christ. The very fact that they got saved was because of Christ. It was through the work of Christ. What is going to be accomplished in their life that they might change will be through Christ. What will be happening at the end in eternity will be preserved and made possible by the coming of Christ. It is all about Jesus Christ. And that's how we need to be when we are conversing with fellow believers, especially in the midst of conflict. We need to be Christ-centered. Always taking it back to Jesus, back to Jesus, back to Jesus, right? It's all about Him. He's mentioned explicitly in every verse. In verse 5 it says, in Him it's talking about Christ. So He is referenced in every verse. It's wonderful. That's Paul's mindset. So with that, let's go to four principles that I want to take away from or four main truths that Paul accentuates here in these first nine verses. And Paul uses this word called called three times in these nine verses. Uh, first in verse 1, Paul called as an apostle. And then in the middle of verse 2, by the way, I'm not just called. I'm called as an apostle. That's my vocation. But you Christians, you Corinthians, even you sinful ones and the erratic ones and ones talking about behind my back, if you are indeed a Christian, you also are called. Did you know that? If you're a Christian today, did you know you have a calling? The interesting thing would be to ask you, so what is your calling, Christian? Because some Christians say, well, I don't know what my calling is or I'm not sure about my calling or I don't know if I have a calling. Well, the way it's used here, Calling is really synonymous with being saved and appointed by God. That's what calling means. You're saved and set apart for a purpose. And so Paul says, I am, I am, I am called by God to be an apostle of truth. You, everybody else, is called, every Christian is called, the middle of verse 2, called to be holy. That's your calling. He's kind of setting the conversation up because they were known for not being holy. They were known for being immoral. And so he says, you're actually, you do have a calling. It's a lifelong calling. It's a calling till Jesus comes or until you die and go to heaven. And your calling is, is that you've been called by God. You've been saved to live a holy life. Saints by calling or called to be holy, called to be sacred. And then finally, the third time, the end of verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called. You were called past tense. Same word though. 
You were called into fellowship. It's synonymous with being saved. You were adopted into the family of God. You were called by God. You were called out of darkness, out of sin, out of the realm of Satan from being one of his pawns. You were called into salvation, into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, into fellowship with the triune God of the universe, into fellowship with every other believer. That was your calling. Every Christian has a calling. And a few times in the book of Corinthians, the word calling is synonymous with being saved by grace. And it's true of every Christian. And hence... Uh, the title I put there is about calling. Every Christian is called. And so that's the main truth we can take away this morning from these nine verses that so many times we just think are preliminary and we read through them and there's no uh, truth and we don't stop and pause and meditate on the riches that are there in those nine verses. And that word is an important one, the calling of God and the life of a Christian. You have purpose in life. The purpose-driven life. Rick Warren didn't make that up, by the way. God did. Every Christian does have a purpose, and it was given by God. And with respect to salvation, it is an eternal purpose. Hence, if you're a Christian, this title is for all of us, and we can embrace it, called to a life of grace. So the Christian doesn't need to mope around and think, oh, I have no purpose in life. I have no calling. Yeah, you do. And it's illustrated clearly here. We are called to a life of grace. Grace, the grace of God, by the word grace, uh, a biblical definition would be Favor from God that is not deserved. Favor and blessing from God that is not earned. Uh, Blessings that God rains down upon us that He didn't even have to give us, probably shouldn't have given us. Grace. God is a God of grace. It's initiated by Him. It is given by Him. It's not mustered up on human strength whatsoever. And the entire Christian life is just immersed in grace. And if you read carefully these nine verses, grace oozes from these nine verses. As he talks about and describes even these sinful, compromising Corinthians, they have a life of grace, at least positionally, because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are four principles here that Paul accentuates regarding a life of grace, regarding these Corinthians, that we can also take and apply to our lives. So let's go ahead and look at those four, and hopefully we'll get through the first one. Today, I don't want to rush through it because it is so important. But look at uh, point number one there on verse one. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. And one thing I want to emphasize there is Paul's emphasizing that we are called to grace by authority, by authority. It's not a human principle. It's not somebody's opinion. It's not human tradition by authority and it's divine authority it's divine revelation these corinthians were saved by god's grace through god's authority and through god's authority that was communicated through the apostle paul and also by the authority of the scripture the living word of god because it's out of the scriptures out of the word of god out of the preached word that paul preached was the gospel the gospel that came from god the good news that originated in heaven not here on earth that came from Jesus Christ, down to earth, down to sinners, and down to the Corinthians. They heard this gospel truth. They hadn't heard it before Paul got there, most of them probably. And they heard it. It was new. It was different. It was shocking. It was contrary to what they heard in the world. It was a confrontation to their worldview that they currently believed, many of them. But it came from God. It came from a divine authority. And Paul speaks with divine authority. I talked about that last week. The word he uses there. Paul, called as an apostle. Keep in mind, Paul is very deliberate in his introduction even, very careful with every selection of every word and every phrase because he. this is a tenuous situation. This is a very sensitive matter. There is already conflict. This thing is ready just to burst. And he already knows and has heard that the Corinthians are questioning his role as an authority. 
They're questioning whether he really is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Maybe some of them are thinking, well, there were only 12 apostles. Paul, when were you with Jesus those three years during ministry? Where were you? You were persecuting Christians. Who were you? You're number 13, 13. That's a bad number. Who knows what these Corinthians thought, but we know clearly from Scripture they began to question his authority, his legitimacy. How ironic is that? These Christians who were born again and who were saved and heard the saving message of Jesus Christ from Paul himself. It's like, hello, think about it. If Paul didn't come to your town and didn't give you the gospel, maybe you wouldn't be saved right now. Maybe you wouldn't be a Christian who was in a position to criticize Paul. Because the gospel came through him. He was the conduit of truth for you. And they don't get it. Does not compute. Does not compute. And they are literally questioning his apostolic authority. That's why in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, and then in all of 2 Corinthians, he is arguing for and reestablishing his rightful authority as an apostle. And he's not saying I am perfect, but what he is saying is I am a spokesman for God. And what I say when I preach to you in the name of God, that's just as authoritative as Jesus Christ himself said it. And what I'm writing in this letter is authoritative and binding. And you need to heed it and submit to it. So he's he's setting it up up front. I am a legitimate apostle, sent by God, given his revelation. It is authoritative. It came from heaven. It saved your soul. You need to live by it. And in His grace, God has chosen me. Yes, I am one of the least of the apostles. Yes, I am the greatest uh, sinner of all, but I'm still an apostle. So Paul, telling us about this authority, and we need to approach Scripture the same way today. When we read the 13 epistles of Paul, it's not Paul's opinion. It is the Word of God to us. It is God's thoughts to us that we need to submit to. That needs to be our attitude. When we read Scripture, we need to first seek to understand it. Okay, I think I understand what it says. Oh, that's confusing. Oh, wait, okay, help me out here. Okay, now I understand what it says. And then the next step is, God, help me to submit to it, believe it, and obey it. Because there are truths in Scripture that we are confronted with at times we don't like. Oh, I don't like that verse. Oh, I don't think that way. Oh, I don't like that truth. Oh, that one's got to be cultural. Well, this one had to be Paul's preference or opinion scripture does that truth does that to sinners like us so just a wonderful reminder from the apostle paul everything we're reading in all 16 chapters every word every phrase every sentence every paragraph is the binding authoritative truth of god almighty and it's out of the same truth that we heard the gospel that saved our soul we were called to grace by divine authority that came from God. And Paul was the conduit of revelation for these dear saints at Corinth. And he wants to remind them of that up front. I was your apostle sent from Jesus. Paul called as an apostle. By the way, I didn't call myself. I didn't appoint myself. By the way, the 12 other apostles in Jerusalem didn't vote on me to be an apostle. I was called. And he says this in almost every one of his epistles. I was called by God Himself. Appointed by God Himself. And the Lord Jesus Christ appointed me to this role. This is not a human role. This is a divine role. And then he goes on, uh, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I'm an apostle, not by human condition, not just by my preference. 
Not simply by my desire or it was convenient. It was by the will of God. The will of God. His role as an apostle focuses on the present condition. He is functioning as an apostle in history during lifetime. This phrase, by the will of God, refers takes us to eternity past. God determined this in eternity past that He knew He would create a man named Saul who would get saved and then God would appoint him as an apostle to plant this church and speak authoritatively for him. This is the will of God, not the will of man. There is no higher authority. It's absolutely amazing. So Paul is very specifically establishing up front his credentials that the Corinthians needed to hear and be reminded of. Paul is not being arrogant and boastful here at all. He's just reminding them of a very fundamental truth they need to be reminded of. So uh, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the, will, by the way, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. In Paul's day, that word apostolos was a very common Greek word that they used in their Greek pagan culture. There were apostles of everything. Apostles of Julius Caesar, apostle of Greek gods, apostles of ships that were being sent, apostolos. It, it was, it, the word meant an authoritative representative of someone else. Carrying weighty authority from that person. So it was a convenient word. The Jews understood it and the Greeks understood it. And when he says, I'm an apostle, but of Jesus Christ, not of Caesar, not of the Greek gods, but of Jesus Christ who reigns in glory even now as the resurrected Lord. He is alive. I am his apostle. Be followers of me as I also am of Jesus Christ, Paul will say later in Corinthians. It is by the will of God. And then he throws this in on the personal level. And Sosthenes, our brother. Sosthenes, not mentioned many times in Scripture, but he is mentioned in Acts chapter 18 when Paul went into the city of Corinth to preach the gospel, planted the church, and he'd been there a while. Then he developed resistance from unbelieving Jews. Uh, The Jews grabbed him and arrested him and dragged him to the public court before Gallio, and they made a charge against Paul regarding his false teaching. And because it was of a religious nature, Gallio dismissed the case, said, I don't do religion. This is a Jewish thing. You guys solve your own problems. Well, then the Jews who arrested Paul were furious. They got mad. There was a revolt and they all jumped on Sosthenes, who was the leader of the synagogue at the time, and they beat him black and blue in public in the courtroom right in front of Gallio. And Gallio, he could care less and looked away. So Sosthenes at that time very well could have been an unbeliever. He actually could have been hostile to Paul at that time. He may have been responsible for spearheading, having Paul arrested and taken to court. Uh, but at that moment, they all turned on Sosthenes. Who knows why? They beat him up. And then after he's laying there bloody, apparently he was soft to the gospel. Hey, Paul, yeah, why don't you say that again, that good news stuff? And that, that those sinners? Yeah, what was that about sinners? And he's mentioned a couple more times in Scripture. We know that Sosthenes came to know the Lord, became a believer. He was from Corinth. He was an influential leader in Corinth. He appreciated the ministry of Paul. As a matter of fact, he is now with Paul, traveling with Paul. And so three years later, when Paul is writing back to the Corinthians who are questioning his leadership, Paul is saying, oh, by the way, I've got Sosthenes with me who cond- not just condones my ministry, but condemns my, uh, commends my ministry and has been blessed through my ministry and is in a partnership with my ministry. Your very own leader in the city of Corinth, Sosthenes, is with me as I write this letter. Paul's setting himself up for the antagonism that he's already had from the Corinthians, Sosthenes. They they should have respected Sosthenes as one of their own. And a man of God, a man of the Scriptures. Oh, really? Sosthenes is with you? Really? Sosthenes likes you? Wow! Who knows what was going through their brain when he said that? So Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. 
Actually, with that, I'm going to go ahead and close. And we're going to pick up at least point two, maybe points two through four next week. But before we close, uh, I just want to remind us of some practical things that we can take away even from verse one. And actually, verse three. If you look at verse three, it was normal for Paul. By the way, Paul wrote 13 epistles. I think he puts his name at the beginning of every single one of them. And one thing that he always includes in his greetings and all of his letters is this beautiful phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a wonderful reminder, no matter the condition of the church, because they all had their problems. By the way, Paul wrote 13 letters because he was trying to solve problems. Every one of those letters was written because he's trying to fix something. Something is messed up. It's either a person or a church. But it doesn't matter what their problem is. They're the foolish Galatians. They're the immoral, rebellious Corinthians. They're the delightful, messed up eschatology uh, Thessalonians. They're the very giving, wonderful, blessed Philippians. They're the weird theology, mystical, kind of okay, cool Colossians. They're whatever it is. As he's, before he lays into fixing all of their problems, he greets them on an equal plane as a sinner saved by grace. And that's why in every letter he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a gentle, wonderful, but specific reminder of where we really stand, regardless of where we're at on our walk with Christ. Because we we span the spectrum here this morning, of all of us here. Some of us are newly saved, little babies immature in the faith. Some of us have been walking with Christ a long time and maybe more mature. Some of us have different backgrounds and have besetting sins that we've carried over from our pagan lifestyle in the past. Some of us were raised very religious with uh, knowledge of the Scriptures and then we got saved and so um, we're doing okay in terms of our morality. We're working on other issues. It doesn't matter what our background is, what our hang-up is, and where we're walking on our journey with Christ. When it comes down to it from God's point of view, We are all saved by grace. Saved by grace and a result. Peace comes from that saving grace that we have because of God and His work through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to challenge you today and as we continue to go through Corinthians, every time you see another believer and haven't seen him in a while, think about how you greet them and think of how you perceive them when you see them. Is it, oh, howdy, sup, how are you doing? Or maybe just ignore them and don't say anything, which is pretty sad. Or is it grace and peace to you? Fellow sinners saved by grace and given supernatural peace as a result by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in Him we are all one. You start thinking that way and you can see how Paul is setting them up to be a unified people in the Lord and not a factious people. And we'll see this more and more as we go. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this day in our week ahead. Father, we do thank you for our time together in worship to give you adoration that you deserve in fellowship to interact with the saints and to be stimulated to love and good deeds and also to hear the truth of your word to be reminded of great truths but also very practical truths. Thank you for the reminder, even just from verse 1, that our salvation is all of you, 100% initiated by you through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We deserve nothing. We earned nothing. Our sufficiency is all in our 
precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, remind us of that great truth today. May it fill our hearts with joy and peace and a supernatural contentment that comes from no other source other than meditating on that blessed truth. Pray your hand of blessing upon everyone here and that you'd go before us with your spirit. And if there's anyone that doesn't know you personally, Lord, that you'd Keep working in their hearts with your spirit, with the love of other believers around them, with the truth of your word on their conscience, and the reminder of what the gospel is all about, that there is salvation possible for the sinner in the risen Jesus Christ. And it's all for his glory we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.